Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Hear me okay, but it's a pleasure. Very well. It's a pleasure and an honor to uh, step in here for one second and just introduce one of our um, most successful and one of the alumni we're most proud of uh, from the Columbia University Department of Urology. Uh, that's Phil Perazio. And Phil was a medical student at Columbia, has gone on to bigger and better things down in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins as associate professor. Uh, and I'll tell you that coming back to give this talk, the Empire Urology, coming, you know, uh, and in really in his heart, he always wishes he's in New York, particularly when it comes to the sports world. Being a Giants fan and a Yankee fan growing up, I'm sure it's his pleasure to come back and support the educational effort, not just for New York, but for the whole country and the whole world through this newly established series uh, that the AUA section has gotten behind here in New York. And we're really thrilled to have him and honestly thrilled to have the camaraderie of the whole uh, AUA community pull together at this time and continue, in fact, probably improve upon the educational opportunities for everybody in the country. And it's something that hopefully we can propagate long after this COVID crisis is over. So Phil, welcome back to the Big Apple remotely through Zoom and really look forward to the uh, impact your talk's gonna have. Thanks, Jim. Um, uh, you know, it's a real pleasure, you said, for, for a lot of reasons to be here. First of all, to see so many familiar faces and, and names on the screen. Uh, and second, as Dr. McKiernan said, you know, I'm from New York and I can't tell you all how much uh, I greatly appreciate your efforts and the stresses and everything you have been going through. Um, obviously having many friends in medicine, but also having many friends and families uh, that I grew up with that have been affected by this disease. So I greatly appreciate everything you guys are doing and it's just a, um, an absolute pleasure to be able to kind of talk to you today. Um, Gina, can you guys see my screen okay? I'm, I'm not getting the screen feedback. I just want to make sure you guys are seeing we it. We can see it perfectly. We Thank can you. see the actual slide. Okay. And as I say, you know, um, I'm having trouble getting the chat open, but if you guys have questions as we go through this, uh, I think the chat will pop up it, it, as questions arise and then just let me know um, or raise your hand and, and we should be able to address them as we go on. Uh, if you want to make this interactive, I'm happy to do that. So uh, here are my uh, disclosures. I have no um, financial disclosures here, but, but should let you know, as part of the AUA Guidelines Committee for Testis Cancer, um, we at Hopkins have an evidence-based practice center that was funded to do that work and write the systematic reviews that, that supported that guideline. So uh, I should let you know that. So the first point uh, I wanna make here is that testicular cancer should not be intimidating. And for a lot of people, it's a rare disease. You don't see it often and kind of understanding all the ins and outs can be really challenging, and for that reason can be really intimidating. So I've created this talk in several layers. And if you feel like you're a testicular cancer novice, then take in kind of the big picture themes. And I'll try and make those very clear kind of as we go through this. And if you feel a little more comfortable with the disease and you wanna push yourself, start looking for more of the details as I go through. And I'm certainly happy to discuss those. But as I said, this, this talk is meant to be given in kind of layers and kind of assess yourself for those layers as, as we go through it. So um, there's a couple of really important themes throughout this. And this is one of the diseases where quality really, really, really matters. 
um, and getting things right and making sure you're doing the appropriate things for patients because um, uh, inappropriate care can actually really lead to detrimental outcomes for a lot of these young men. And to that point, a lot of us were trained kind of with this saying that we don't let the sun set on a testicular mass. And one of the things you're gonna see throughout this is that technically is really no longer true. For some patients, that's obviously gonna be the case, but it's much more important to get it right from beginning of diagnosis all the way through management, much more important to get the diagnosis, the staging, the management correct than it is to get it quickly. We all recognize that cancers can move quickly um, and that can certainly be anxiety provoking and, and nerve wracking, but it's not uh, entirely the, the case. So we're gonna do this in three, um, three basic uh, chapters. We're gonna start kind of with the cellular origins of testicular cancer. We'll, do, we'll talk about subtypes, epidemiology, the risk factors and genetics, and kind of try and tie that all in together to help you understand it. We'll talk about the initial evaluation and why staging is so important in this disease. And then lastly, focus on what are those management options by stage uh, and survivorship. This really is a disease of survivors. So in our building blocks here, we're going to start with epidemiology, risk factors, and pathogenesis. So the normal testicle. Um, and what we know, just kind of basically here, most masses that originate within the parenchyma of the testicle are actually cancerous. And the majority of masses that present to our clinics that are outside of the testicle are actually benign. And that's really one of the first important counseling criteria for our patients. A lot of patients come and freak out they have cancer, and it turns out they have a paratesticular or scrotal mass that really has nothing to do with the testicle. And it's really important to reassure those patients. They may need a workup, they may need surgery, but it's unlikely that they have a, a germ cell tumor. These are kind of the normal cells of the testicle. And this is really just to make the point that cancers can arise from any of these cells. But we're really gonna to focus today on germ cell tumors. And these are the, the cells that are, that are destined to become sperm. So if we think about kind of our progression of cancer from normal to abnormal, um, what you basically uh, before in the pre-spermatogonia state or before these cells become sperm, there's a differentiation problem, and that's where most of our germ cell tumors branch off. We can uh, form seminomas and non-seminomas, but they all originate from these primordial sperm cells, and we'll talk more about this. So in general, kind of the breakdown of, of testis cancers, right? I told you they can form from any cells. We're not gonna talk at all about stromal tumors today. Those are Sertoli cell or Leydig cell tumors. We're gonna focus on the germ cell tumors, which in broad categories are either seminoma, or non-seminoma. Importantly, seminomas are the most common. They're greater than 50% of germ cell tumors. Remember that 10 to 15% of them will produce HCG, and we're gonna talk a lot about tumor markers later. They will never, ever, ever produce AFP, and they are notoriously fast-growing, but because of that, they have a high cure rate. They're extremely sensitive to chemotherapy and radiation. These are the guys you'll see in your ER and your clinics who said, listen, two weeks ago, I had maybe a little bump on my testicle, and now it's the size of a softball. That's not uncommon with a seminoma, you'll see that. Non-seminomas are in general more aggressive than seminoma, and the reason we say that is because um, uh, fewer than 50%, only about 30% of them are actually stage one at presentation. They will most often present in an advanced setting. The most common presentation is some mixture of germ cell tumors and particularly non-seminomas. If you have an AFP elevation, it's diagnostic. And if you think of just kind of the pearls for each one of these, embryonal cancers have a high risk of, uh, a very high risk of recurrence. Yolk sac tumors are more common in children. These are things that pop up on tests. 
Choriocarcinomas are often show up with diffuse pulmonary and other metastases. These are guys who can show up with brain mets. And teratoma is your RPLND tumor. These are the ones that are not chemotherapy or radiation therapy responsive. And just to kind of show you some of the kind of classic uh, histology here, right? This is a seminoma, a very white to yellow tumor replacing or pushing away most of the normal parenchyma in the testicle. And you can see these cells are kind of similar throughout. They're, uh, they have kind of, they call fried egg appearance. And you see a lot of lymphocytic infiltrate around seminomas typically. Here are your non-seminomas, much uglier tumors, really pleomorphic, a lot of atypia. The classic things to remember, embryonal cancers will, can grow in papillary projections. Yolk sac tumors have their Schiller-Duval bodies. Uh, choriocarcinomas can often have necrosis with them. There's not a lot of necrosis on this slide, but that's one of the common findings. And remember, teratomas are going to show many different forms of cell types under the microscope. And I'm just going to show you a couple classic images to take home choriocarcinoma. These are your, this is your classic x-ray for cannonball metastasis uh, and what some of these young men can show up with, either symptomatic or asymptomatic. And just to kind of show you what his CT scan looked like at presentation. But what's dramatic is that these go away with chemotherapy and very often these guys will get a lot better. Now they can have issues with tumor lysis syndrome and they can certainly have some pulmonary compromise uh, in the acute setting. But uh, for the vast majority of guys, they will get better with chemotherapy. So remember, testicular cancer is not that common in the kind of realm of cancers, but it is the most common malignancy for men 15 to 44 years old. Between 9 and 10,000 cases per year in the U.S., it is the second most common malignancy for young men, especially teens, early 20s, the most common being bloodborne uh, cancers. If you look at kind of the bell-shaped curve of age, the median diagnosis is in the early 30s. But remember, you can see this in infants. You can see this in men in their 90s, much more common in men's in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, but you can see it at any age. So don't ever be dissuaded. Oh, there's a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old with mass. That can't be cancer. In fact, that's uh, not uncommon at all. If you look globally, this is a disease of the developed world and developed countries, and you can see that incidence is steadily increasing over the last uh, few decades. Fortunately, the mortality is also decreasing. Nowhere is that more clear than in the United States, where we've seen dramatic increase in the number of cancers, but a real drop-off in, in mortality. And the reason you see the real drop-off in mortality was because of Dr. Einhorn uh, and the introduction of platinum-based chemotherapy in 1974, first paper written up in 77. And you see, once you have platinum-based chemotherapy, the mortality rate for metastatic germ cell tumors went from 90% uh, to somewhere in the range of 20 to 30%. And so now less than 5% of testis cancers overall will die of, of, of tumor. If you look how men are presenting, the majority of men present with clinical stage one testicular cancer. Uh, that means confined to the testicle. We'll talk more about staging. And if you break it down by seminoma and non-seminoma, Seminomas are much more common than non-seminomas, so clinical stage one seminoma is the most common presentation of testicular cancer. Remember that it will show up on your in-services. Why do men develop testis cancer? Well, in general, we don't really know, but there are four well-established risk factors for the disease. The first is cryptorchidism or an undescended testicle. Um, there's a four to six fold increased risk of developing cancer in that undescended testicle. If they have an orchiopexy before puberty, you can reduce that risk, but it never makes it uh, e uh, equal to the general population. And there's even a slightly increased risk in the normal contralateral descended testicle 
in young men who have cryptorchidism. Why does this happen? Well, we know kind of in the developing embryo, the testicles or the, um, the, the gonads actually develop above the kidneys. And as the embryo elongates, the testicles come to their normal resting place outside of the body. So when development is off, there's an increased risk for cancer. We don't entirely understand that process, but, uh, but they're certainly linked. Second risk is family history. So if a brother or a father has testis cancer, uh, that young man has a much higher risk than his colleagues. Uh, and in general, uh, they're gonna show up at a younger age. This one's kind of weird, but a personal history. If you've had testis, while only 2% of testis cancer patients will have a recurrence or develop a second tumor, it's a much higher risk than the general population. Typically, you see this in younger men who present with seminomas. They're the most common to develop another seminoma later in life. And the last one is something called germ cell neoplasia in situ, which is basically a precursor lesion to testis cancer. This is typically found uh, during the evaluation of fertility when men undergo testicular biopsies. It's present adjacent to cancers 80 to 90% of the time. And the numbers to remember here, if you find GCNIS, 50% of those men will develop an invasive germ cell tumor at five years, 70% at seven years. And you can extrapolate what it means after a decade of, of watching these guys. So uh, this is uh, also one of the big risk factors for, for cancer. What are not risk factors? Smoking, obesity, bicycle riding, larger testicles. Uh, all of these things are actually in the literature. They're not uh, predictive uh, of uh, the future germ cell tumor. And microlithiasis is the big one here that's actually worth touching uh, on just a little bit. So the best study um, about microlithiasis came from uh, healthy army volunteers. About 1,500 healthy army volunteers, 18 to 35 years old, were screened for testicular microlithiasis. What they found was about 5% of those guys had microlithiasis, but over five years, only one of them went on to develop a testicular cancer. So the conclusions kind of from this study and taken forward is that testicular cancer is not going to develop in the majority of men with microlithiasis. Therefore, intensive screening is really not effective, but they should uh, know that they may be at slightly higher risk and, and proceed with self-examination. There's also metadata in this realm um, and basically shows that in general, the population with testicular microlithiasis is not at an increased risk of cancer, but men who have what's called a referral population or men who basically had pre-existing risk factors with microlithiasis did have a higher risk. So how do we interpret that? Well, we know the four risk factors. If you have microlithiasis and one of the existing factors, you certainly are at higher risk for developing a germ cell tumor uh, in the future. So um, we basically say, uh, if you have isolated small volume microlithiasis, you need no further workup. But if you have a risk factor, you should perform monthly self-exam. Depending on the patient's kind of personality, we do consider annual ultrasound in some of these men. So back to kind of our development here. So what about the genetic factors? What's kind of predisposing these men to cancer? And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on, on the genetics, but there's really great work if you're interested. Uh, came out of the UK. It was actually funded by, by Movember. So when you grow those mustaches and you raise money or awareness, it actually goes to a good cause. So they uh, looked at almost a thousand men with testicular cancer. About 150 of those were in families. And they found that this was really polygenic and that there was a single high penetrance locus was not going to be found, that there were at least 25 genes associated with an increased risk. If you did the calculations, 50% of the risk was actually heritable and can be attributed to these genes. And if you think about breast and prostate cancer, where we know genes that are related to this, they're only about 30% heritable. So highly heritable disease, unfortunately, we don't have a gene to put our finger on. 
And then what about the environmental risk factors? Well, there's kind of a hypothetical uh, syndrome called testicular dysgenesis. And kind of the concept here is that uh, genetic susceptibilities coupled with environmental exposures has led to increased basically genital issues for men, decreased spermatogenesis or decreased fertility throughout the world, undescended testicles, more hypospadias. And as the testicular dysgenesis syndrome increases, not only do you see increases in those three things, but you can also see an increased risk of testis cancer. And there's some anecdotal and kind of peripheral data that supports this. One of the really, some of the really interesting data is um, from data from second generation immigrants in this country and others that uh, indicate that actually exposure of parents and grandparents may lead to higher levels of organic pollutants and increased risk of testicular cancer patients and kind of that index patient. And where we see that the most in the US is in our Hispanic and Latino populations. There's been a tremendous increase in the number of Hispanic and Latino men presenting with germ cell tumors over the last decade. And if those numbers project out, it will actually overtake the rates in the white and Caucasian population um, probably by 2030. So really interesting phenomenon going on in the Latino population in the US. So just to kind of summarize this section here, uh, germ cell tumors are the most frequent solid tumors in men 15 to 35. Stage one seminoma is the most common presentation. And remember, there are four established risk factors. And if you understand those risk factors, the tied in with the gen genetics and the environmental exposures, it helps explain our epidemiologic phenomenon that we're seeing. So continuing with our building blocks here, initial evaluation, clinical staging, and tumor markers. So testicular cancer comes in all shapes and sizes. These are just a number of celebrities that were diagnosed with testicular cancer in the last decade or two. Um, from a variety of ethnic and racial backgrounds, a variety of ages, uh, and a variety of exposures. And, and all of them were diagnosed at different stages. Uh, almost all of them were cured. The most common presentation is a palpable painless nodule or swelling in the vast majority of men. Some guys will describe this as a dull ache or heavy sensation. It's actually very rare to present with testicular pain and that usually is an indication of a cellular infarct. You can see reactive hydrocele's. Rarely you can see gynecomastia. That can be an initial presentation, especially if someone has an elevated HCG. You'll catch a really astute internist who will have somebody, a young man, come in, complain of gynecomastia, send off an HCG, and do a testicular exam. You'll find uh, people every once in a while that way. Oligospermial or infertility uh, workups are a common presentation for this. And once again, rarely uh, will they present with metastasis. But remember, young guys shouldn't have neck masses. They shouldn't have seizures, unexplained seizures or other problems. So you got to have uh, kind of be uh, keen to look out for some of these things. When we wrote the guidelines, we put in a number of do's and don'ts for kind of the diagnosis and workup. And I think it's worth going over a couple of those here. The first one is that a solid mass is malignant until proven otherwise. And I think where this is most attributable is a guy will come in with pain or discomfort in the testicle and we attribute that to orchitis. If there is a mass Testicular infections, epididymal orchitis, does not present with a mass. If there is a mass, it is a cancer until proven otherwise, and you need to work it up. Antibiotics are inappropriate if you feel a mass. Remember, we're always going to send off tumor markers for the workup if a with a man with a mass. Ultrasound with Doppler is the diagnostic modality of choice, and there are a number of colleagues who basically say ultrasound is the extension of our physical exam. We actually have a protocol at Hopkins if a man complains of a testicular mass, we schedule them for an ultrasound and an appointment the same day to kind of facilitate their workup. It's very rare that you're going to do an exam and say, I don't need an ultrasound. They're cheap. There's no radiation, not a bad way to do things. 
And most important, and really importantly we do is getting to that don't let the sunset. We wanna make management decisions with up-to-date data. We want our imaging, whether that's your scrotal ultrasound or your CT scan that we're gonna talk about later within kind of four weeks of your decision point. And typically serum tumor markers are gonna want within 10 days uh, at most two weeks uh, for many management decisions. Don't, what don't you need? You definitely don't need an MRI for the evaluation of a testicular lesion. If you've got a weird story and it doesn't make sense, yeah, in, in the rare runoff circumstance, an MRI may be helpful, but for the vast majority of men, MRI is not needed for the initial evaluation. PET scan has zero role in the diagnosis or staging of testicular cancer. It's only useful post-chemotherapy seminomas. We'll talk about that later. You do not need to sperm bank before orchiectomy unless there's a quote-unquote solitary testicle or subfertility. We'll touch on that. And we already talked about microlithiasis. So, here are testicular cancer tumor markers. These lo things love to show up on tests because they have very objective data that is very easy to do. So this is your study slide. Remember your half-lives. The quickest one is HCG, 24 to 36 hours. So you should see a rapid decrease in your HCG once your testicular cancer is treated. Your AFP will linger five to seven days. So I just think a week. You should see it decrease weekly. And if it's not doing that, then you have to get your radar up. What are the things, the testicular cancer specifics? Remember AFP, you're not gonna see them in seminoma or choriocarcinoma. HCG is made by syncytiotrophoblasts, so you're gonna see it in seminomas and many of the forms of non-seminoma. Interestingly, we always associate HCG with seminoma, but if your HCG is greater than 5,000, think non-sem. Seminomas very rarely get to that level. Why do LDHs go up? Well, sometimes it's cell turnover and death, but it's actually that the LDH gene is right next to chromosome 12P, which is increased and elevated in men with testicular cancer. So because you have that amplification of 12P, you get LDH uh, ramping up and you'll see increased LDH livers. Where are the false positives? AFP, think liver disease. HCG, hypogonadism will drive up an LH, which will artificially drive up your HCG associated with marijuana use. So if you have a heavy marijuana smoker with a borderline HCG, you can ask them to abstain for a week or two and retest. That doesn't often work out, but sometimes you can do that. Uh, and really LDH is nonspecific, so it can go up for a variety of reasons. So what do we wanna consider uh, in addition to our tumor markers? I send testosterone panels on all of our patients and this will get into our survivorship uh, later, but basically we know testicular cancer survivors are at an increased risk of hypogonadism. So we like to get a good baseline testosterone uh, and hormone functions before we remove a testicle. Who needs sperm banking preorchiectomy? Not many guys. Um, and you're gonna see this, this term, congenital, acquired, or functionally solitary testicle. So if they only have one testicle, if they've got masses in both testicles, if they had prior surgery or an atrophic testicle on the other side, those guys you may wanna sperm bank for because there may be something wrong with that other testicle. But if that other testicle is normal, they do not need to sperm bank preorc they can if they want to, especially if their markers are normal. Who do we do sperm extraction on? Well, somebody who's gone undergoing a fertility evaluation and they need sperm, it's a great time to go get sperm potentially from a testicle that's coming out. And we're gonna talk about testis sparing surgery. I am not gonna talk about contralateral testicle biopsy, which is really not used in this country. Uh, there is some data to support it uh, around the world. So here's one of the themes I want you to remember. Radical inguinal orchiectomy is the gold standard most of the time. And when we wrote guidelines around this, here's the guideline statement. Patients with testicular lesions suspicious for a malignant neoplasm and a normal contralateral testis should undergo a radical inguinal orchiectomy. Testis sparing surgery is not recommended in this setting. There's a, little, there's a couple of things uh, kind of curved into that you, that you need to understand. 
Well, testicular lesion is suspicious for malignant neoplasm. Well, what's not suspicious? Well, actually, non-palpable masses that are less than two centimeters with negative tumor markers, actually up to 80% of those can be benign. Or if you've got someone with equivocal ultrasound findings, right? The classic is a hypoechoic vascular lesion. Well, if it's not really hypoechoic or it's really hard to see if it has flow, these may not be germ cell tumors. And so uh, it's certainly, uh, you can consider testis sparing surgery for that reason if you think they have a benign mass. And also, um, uh, if they have that indeterminate or equivocal finding, there's nothing wrong with repeating imaging in six to eight weeks, especially if they have normal tumor markers. So get it, bring them back into your clinic, make sure you have a scheduled appointment, but you can repeat that ultrasound if you're not sure what it shows. And the second part of this is, who does not have a normal contralateral testicle? Well, we talked about this. These are your congenital, acquired, or functional, or solitary testicles, bilateral metachronous masses. So your indications for testis sparing surgery, on the flip side, if you're suspicious of a benign mass, you can certainly do a frozen analysis. You should remove that testicle in the same setting if malignant. The pathologist is the most important person there that day. So make sure you have a good GU pathologist around if you're going to do that. And two, you can spare a testicle if you want to preserve normal testicular function in men with bilateral tumors or men with a solitary testicle. There's not a lot of great data to support that, but it certainly is a reasonable thing to consider. What about scrotal orchiectomies? Well, obviously we shouldn't be doing cancer operations through the scrotum. It increases the risk of local recurrence. There's no data to say that it supports uh, increased risk of distant death, but they do need adjunctive therapy. You need to, either need to excise that scrotal scar or you need to give them radiotherapy for local control. Chemo doesn't really help. We should be talking to our men about prosthetics. Uh, there's very low morbidity, um, really uh, malposition, uh, deflation of a saline-filled implant, uh, need for explant are the biggest risks. Satisfaction rates are extremely high, importantly, whether or not they get a prosthetic. Most guys actually don't want one, but we should have a conversation with everybody. Here's a really important kind of uh, thematic uh, point, too, is that clinical staging for testicular cancer occurs once, and it occurs after orchiectomy. And what do we mean by this? So here's our clinical staging, right? So stage one disease is confined to the testicle, cure rate 99% or better. Clinical stage two disease, this is disease that has spread to the lymph nodes in the retroperitoneum. There's your N1, N2, N3 staging. The number to remember here is two centimeters, five centimeters. Less than two centimeters, stage uh, uh, 2A. If you have greater than five centimeters, you're 2C. 90% cure rate in, in stage two. Stage three is distant metastasis. Anything outside of the retroperitoneal, retroperitoneal lymph nodes, these can be lungs, these can be other visceral mets. And importantly, there's also stage 1S disease, which is systemic or metastatic disease, marker-only positive disease without any visible cancer. So importantly, we're gonna assign a stage, TNMS staging. This is the only cancer that includes serum tumor, or one of the only cancers that includes serum tumor markers as part of the staging. I put it here for you. Um, it kind of, uh, you can see all the details, uh, but I've kind of grossly gone over it with you already. And really importantly, stage defines prognosis and it determines their management options. So really important to sign this. It would help you understand what you have to talk to these patients about. So tumor markers, S staging particularly occurs after orchiectomy. Basically at two week intervals, you want, if they have elevated tumor markers, you wanna make sure that those tumor markers nadir or come down all the way. Importantly, if their tumor markers were negative prior to orchiectomy, you need to prove that they stay negative after. So two weeks later, you see them in post-op or whenever your pattern is, get markers again, prove that their markers stay normal, prove that they're negative. Now, obviously, if somebody already has metastatic disease, 
pulmonary nodules, liver meds, it doesn't matter what their markers do, get them to, get them to therapy. And importantly, the reason we follow every two weeks is because markers can take time to normalize. This is a young man who showed up to me with a, uh, an AFP of 10,000 and an HCG of 67. That looks like really scary disease, super high tumor markers. Well, the HCG normalized pretty quickly within about a month or so, uh, but the AFP lingered and it actually took two months for it to come down completely normal. He had no evidence of other metastatic disease. Guess what? He's got stage one disease. And if you based your, your uh, therapy on your suspicion in the beginning, he would have got unnecessary chemotherapy. And for men uh, who do have elevated markers after, sometimes when they're borderline high, an HCG that's kind of in the one, two range, maybe a little hypogonadism, an AFP that's out of your lab's normal range, but is not really moving, you want to confirm a rising trend, particularly with AFPs. We know about 2% of guys will have an AFP that's out of your lab's normal range, but it's not rising. It's not changing. You don't want to treat anyone based on a tumor marker alone. That tumor marker should be rising or they should have other signs of disease. Now with imaging, um, we want to get our clinical stage correct and we got to get it correct once. So what we say is if there's equivocal imaging, if you're not sure if they have metastatic disease, there's a really small nodule in the lung, um, three millimeters and somebody who recently had a cough as well, or their, uh, and their serum tumor marker is normal, go ahead and repeat that staging imaging. This will declare itself. And it's much more important to take six or eight weeks, get another CT scan, see if that pulmonary nodule, if it's gone away and it was reactive, or they had a small borderline lymph node in their abdomen, it will go away if it's reactive and they don't need additional therapy. If it's still there, if it grows, if more nodes pop up, you really haven't lost anything and you made sure that they got the right therapy um, as opposed to guessing and, and getting the wrong therapy. So take your time, get it correct once, and that may take some time. Remember, everyone needs abdomen and pelvis imaging. This can be a CT scan or MRI. CT is most common in the US. Everyone needs chest imaging, but you can really think about what chest imaging they need. I'm gonna show you the data, but for seminomas with normal tumor markers and normal abdominal imaging, you can get chest x-rays or you cannot image their chest at all. For non-seminomas, you need to get a chest CT scan and I'm gonna show you why. So here's your statistics from, from surveillance data for clinical stage one testicular cancers. Not a single seminoma will skip the retroperitoneum and go to the chest without elevated markers or enlarged nodes. So if their nodes are normal and their markers are normal, you can basically leave their chest alone. Can happen occasionally in non-seminomas. And more importantly, x-ray can miss mediastinal disease and it can miss pulmonary nodules that could change staging and change uh, basically uh, management options. So you need one good CT scan of the chest with somebody with a non-seminoma. If you've got suspicious findings on an x-ray, certainly get them a, a CT scan. So for our staging presentation, tumor markers, remember our most common presentation is a painless testicular mass. Tumor markers are essential for the diagnostic workup and accurate staging. Radical inguinal orchiectomy is our gold standard for the diagnosis and initial management. And clinical staging occurs once. Make sure you get your S staging after orchiectomy if you have equivocal imaging, whether it's tumor markers or imaging, repeat it. Get it a few weeks later. Get it right. Don't get it quick. And lastly, your chest imaging should reflect your tumor biology. Think about what kind of cancer your patient has and what the right diagnostic and staging workup is. So our last section here uh, is management and survivorship. So here's our next big theme. The management goals and options 
vary by stage, and this is covered by the majority of statements in the AUA testicular cancer guidelines. So here in general are our management options if you wanna kind of take them in your, in your broad thoughts here. So surveillance is for stage one disease, seminoma or non-seminoma. And this is the best therapy or best management to avoid unnecessary treatment. It does require serial imaging and tumor markers, pretty much lifelong, you can make the argument. And recurrence is most often treated, excuse me, with chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is for seminomas and non-SEMs. This is your highest cure rate as a single modality, the lowest relapse. I talk to guys about your one and done. If you want to put this behind you, especially in the stage one setting, this is your therapy. You can use either carboplatinum for stage one seminomas, and we're going to talk about that, multi-agent platinum chemotherapy, whether it's BEP or, e -E or EP, is used for your advanced stage. The two terms you need to know, adjuvant and therapeutic, really important in germ cell tumors and cancer in general, right? Adjuvant therapy is treatment in the setting of no visible disease. We know someone's at risk of cancer coming back. There's nothing visible. We're going to treat them in an adjuvant setting. That's our stage one germ cell tumors. Anyone with stage two or stage three disease needs therapeutic chemotherapy. And in general, adjuvant is going to be one cycle. Therapeutic is going to be multiple cycles of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy has both short and long-term toxicities that we need to be aware of it. Similarly, radiation also has short and long-term toxicities. It's really only used for seminoma, and the reason is teratoma is radiation resistant, so it's not effective for, the, for uh, a good proportion of men with non-seminomas. It certainly has a high cure rate for the field that's radiated. There's certainly the risk of out-of-field relapse, and as I talked about, short and long-term toxicities are most well-documented with radiation therapy. And lastly, RPLND can be used for any stage disease, um, really uh, any stage non-seminoma. Uh, it's really being thought about now for stage one and two aseminomas in this setting, um, kind of a equivalent uh, local regional treatment to radiation. It also has a high cure rate, not as high as chemotherapy. It treats teratoma in the setting of RPLN, uh, in the setting of non-seminomas, and it avoids long-term toxicities, but trades those all for the short-term operative risks of a big operation. So how do we break this down and how do we think about our management goals? So for stage one disease, we know we've got a 99 to 100% cure rate. Our goals here, avoid unnecessary treatments, minimize long-term toxicities. Stage, uh, and the, the, what I typically talk to these guys about, uh, um, usually I ask the audience here, um, but I'll just give you the answer. This is an artist's rendition of all roads leading to Rome. And you see the green dot kind of uh, in the middle of Italy there. And the concept here is that all of these men are going to be cured. They can choose what path they want to set out on, recognizing we may get knocked off that path. We may, we may need an additional therapy, but we're getting to Rome. We're going to be cured. And so here's your data for stage one testicular cancer. Most stage one disease is low risk. And basically that's based on their recurrence risk. All stage one seminomas have a 10% or less risk of recurrence. For a stage 1A non-seminoma, which is really defined by lymphovascular invasion. So if there's no lymphovascular invasion, they have about a 15% risk of recurrence over the next two to five years. So for those men, surveillance is really the preferred management strategy. 85 to 90% of men are cured with orchiectomy alone, avoid unnecessary treatments. For seminomas, they certainly have carboplatinum and radiotherapy as adjunctive options. For non-SEMs, you can talk about one cycle of BEP. That's based on uh, a recent randomized study. Or they can have an, uh, an RPLND uh, to kind of clean up that area. Not typically recommended. 
for men with stage 1B seminoma, non-seminomas, who have a non-seminomatous component with lymphovascular invasion, while they're still looking at a 99 to 100% cure rate, their recurrence rate is somewhere in between 40 and 60%. So in the, not all men are willing to accept that risk of recurrence. And so surveillance, primary chemotherapy, or primary RPLND become much more equivalent options here. And it really comes down to a discussion with the patient. What's their tolerance of risk of recurrence, risk of chemotherapy, or risk of surgery? And you kind of balance those things out. I'm just going to talk briefly about the principles of surveillance. This can get very confusing for people and you can get yourself in the weeds here. I'm going to try and simplify it for you. Here's what the AUA guidelines say in a table. I was part of the authorship here. This is confusing, but I'm going to try and make some points to kind of really simplify it for you here. Here's once again, the summary statistics of surveillance for stage one testicular cancer. I'm going to make a couple of points. The first is that the time to recurrence is inversely related to the risk of recurrence. The more aggressive the cancer is upfront, the shorter that median time to recurrence. So the longest recurrences happen with seminoma. They happen typically a year or later after the, after the diagnosis of disease. Stage 1A non-seminomas, somewhere in the range of eight months to a year. 1B non-seminomas, the most aggressive cancers, typically recur within a three to six month window because they have the most aggressive cancers. The second point to make is tumor marker recurrences. Seminomas are highly unlikely to recur with tumor markers. You can decide to omit those from your practice. I still send an HCG and an AFP. They're cheap, they're easy. What if you got it wrong? What if it, there was a non-seminomatous component? Uh, but you can see 40 to 60% of non-seminomas will recur by markers alone. So really important to check markers in that population. So how do we break this down? So here's, this is the way I do it in my practice and I think this really simplifies it. If you get your serum tumor markers and your imaging, three, six, 12, 18, and 24 months for the first two years. You should be checking your tumor markers every three months for that first two years. And then after that, you double everything. So your serum tumor markers become every six months and you get your imaging annually through year five. You have covered that patient, yourself, and the guideline requirements for five years. What are the nuanced thoughts here? What do we have to think about? If they have a stage one seminoma, chest imaging is optional. I do it once a year just to be thorough and kind of for health maintenance. If you have a low risk stage one disease, which is remember all of your seminomas or a 1A non-sem, you can omit that three month Im imaging. They're unlikely to get that. You could go right to six months. Uh, I do that uh, for a lot of guys with low risk disease. Really important in the surveillance population is late relapse. And these are guys who will relapse beyond two years or beyond five years. And you can see those curves really flatten. So there's, there's never a time where there's a zero risk of this cancer coming back. I get away from imaging. I use tumor markers and I check testosterones on an annual basis to kind of keep men plugged into good health maintenance. Um, in my practice right now, I'm getting uh, axial imaging once every five years because I don't think we understand the late relapses. Um, in general, they do poorly. What we don't know is if, that, if we catch them early, can they do better? So that's why I image them, but I wouldn't say that's necessarily for everybody. So that's kind of stage one disease in a nutshell. Stage two disease, right? This is disease that requires additional treatment. We should minimize toxicities. How do we minimize toxicity? Well, we try to get them to cure with as few therapies as possible. And we really wanna prioritize survivorship, recognizing greater than 90% cure in the setting. So here's your outcomes for stage two disease. So remember, overall, it doesn't matter whether they have seminoma or non-seminoma, their cure rate is greater than 90%. For seminomas in the 2A, these are less than two centimeter nodes. 
Chemotherapy and radiotherapy are really equivalent oncologic outcomes. They obviously have different side effect profiles and there is an ongoing, well, it's no longer enrolling, but there's an RPLND trial in this setting to see if surgery can offer equivalent outcomes to radiotherapy in this setting. For men who have what was called quote unquote bulky lymph nodes, which are greater than three centimeter seminomas, there really is good data to support chemotherapy over radiation therapy, much more effective in this setting. Obviously, if someone's got a contraindication to chemotherapy or that's going to be a challenge for them, radiotherapy is okay in this setting, uh, but chemotherapy has better outcomes. Importantly, I've highlighted 2C disease for both seminoma and non-seminoma. These are treated with chemotherapy. Um, if treated with local therapy, whether that's RPLND or radiation, um, the, the recurrence rate is still greater than 90% outside of the abdomen, so chemotherapy is your effective therapy there. For non-SEMS, 2A disease, Chemotherapy and RPLND are basically equivalent or, or close to equivalent in this setting. The, the detriment to chemotherapy is it's not going to treat your teratominous components. RPLND will treat the majority of disease. And if they have low volume cancer in the retroperitoneum, the cure rate is greater than 90% with surgery. For stage 2B disease, that RPLND becomes a little more equivalent. Remember, this is your 50-50 zone. So about 50% of them will recur after RPLND. So you can talk to them about whether they want to try to avoid chemotherapy. And just to talk briefly about primary RPLND, it is associated with the lowest rates of chemotherapy, and that is priority for a lot of young men. So the risk of recurrence is related to the end stage. So if they have N1 disease, which is two centimeters or less, 90% cure with surgery. If they have N3 disease, greater than five centimeters worth of nodes, 90% of them will relapse even if they undergo a complete cleanup, it will relapse out of the retroperitoneum. And then two diseases, you're 50-50. You got a 50% chance of cure with surgery alone. But remember, I do this operation. There are a lot of people who do it. We do it minimally invasively now. There are complications, bowel obstruction, chylosocieties. There's certainly convalescence, big midline scar. We do them robotically. Not everybody does or should do that, um, but it certainly is a reasonable thing to do to try and minimize that convalescence. Um, and there's certainly the considerations of ejaculation, right? We want to preserve normal fertility in these men. And this is where a role where template surgery comes into to role. I'm not going to talk a lot about RPLND. I'm certainly happy to answer questions. But in general, in stage one disease, there's no argument that a template surgery is A-OK. -okay. Right-sided disease, you're basically going to clean out the vena cava over to the aorta in the pre-aortic space. For left-sided disease, you're going to clean out everything in front of and behind the aorta, including the interorta into aortocable space. If you have stage two disease, it's really much more controversial. If you have a positive lymph node, uh, there's a much higher risk of it being out of that primary landing zone. Uh, and so you may wanna consider bilateral templates in all of those men. That's uh, what I do, but there's certainly data to support um, unilateral templates in men with stage two disease. Why is primary RPND associated with the lowest rates of recurrence? Well, here's your recurrence rates, at, um, uh, which comes from the prior slide. Here's your prevalence. So if you do surgery, this is basically based on the number of men. And if you see, if you then limit adjuvant chemotherapy to only those men who have N2 or N3 disease, and I, could, I would make the argument you could even limit to men with N3 disease only, you're going to have a relapse rate of 9% or less, and the majority of men will avoid chemotherapy. So it is really a reasonable option to avoid uh, chemotherapy in these guys. So lastly, we now have disseminated disease. This is your clinical stage 1S tumor marker positive disease or anybody with distant metastasis. All bets come off here. Cure at all costs. Often multimodal therapy needed here. 
70% cure rate, which is still excellent for metastatic cancer, but a lot lower than our guys with stage one and stage two disease. Here's what you need to know about 1S disease. This is the best data that came from the Spanish germ cell group, 110 patients with stage 1S disease. All of those men got chemotherapy, 108 were rendered disease free, and only 12 of them needed surgery. This is disseminated disease. Surgery at best will cure 50% of these guys if done up front. They'll give them all chemotherapy, uh, and that's how you treat that disease. If someone has metastatic disease, they need to be risk classified, and this is part of our staging system. So remember, our you have staging, and then you have risk classification, and risk classification is only for advanced or metastatic disease. This looks really confusing. Once again, I'm going to simplify it for you. If they, if they have pulmonary metastasis only and their markers are less than four digits, they've got good risk disease. That'll simplify it for you. Now, AFP, the, I'm sorry, HCG, uh, the number is actually 5,000, not 1,000. But if you're less than 1,000, you're clear. Less than four digits in there in your tumor markers, you're in good risk disease. Remember, no seminoma is ever poor risk. The cure rate for seminomas is, is really high, even in the metastatic setting. And so how to remember poor risk non-seminomas. So if you've got a non-testicular non primary, so most commonly mediastinal, if you've got non-pulmonary visceral mets, that's liver, most commonly liver mets or brain mets, or if you've got the highest tumor markers you have ever seen in your life, think about poor risk disease. And that's honestly the way I do it. If you see, if they had less than four digits, good risk. If you've got more than four zeros, you need to look and see if they have poor risk disease and that'll help you kind of quantify that. Why is it so important to classify these? Well, first of all, it determines prognosis. Look at the prognosis for good risk versus intermediate and poor risk disease here. But most importantly, it determines the chemotherapy. Now, even as urologists, we don't administer chemotherapy, but they love to show, they show up on tests all of the time. So for good risk disease, we're talking about BEP times three or EP times four. If you have intermediate or poor risk, you're getting a different first-line therapy, BEP or VEP, and they need four cycles. So once again, you're not going to be prescribing this as a urologist, but your colleagues in oncology will, and your patients will ask, and they will test you on this. Uh, very testable. There is randomized data to support these outcomes, so that's why you need to remember those, uh, those numbers. What do you need to know as a urologist about uh, advanced disease? So you need to know your chemotherapy toxicities of note. So for bleomycin, that's pulmonary fibrosis or pleural fibrosis. Um, so all of these guys will get pulmonary function testing beforehand that's handled by oncology. You don't need to do that. Etoposide can lead to myelosuppression and later in life, um, uh, leukemia and lymphoma, platinum, all the single organ toxicities, nephrotoxicity, neuropathy, azospermia. Um, BEP and EP in terms of oncologic outcomes are equivalent in the literature. So who do you want to avoid bleomycin in? Men who have prior serious pulmonary disease or decreased baseline PFTs, significant pulmonary metastasis. Just because you have a pulmonary met doesn't mean you can't get bleomycin. In fact, you probably should. But that kid I showed you um, with the uh, cannonball mets should not get bleomycin. Um, he also had poor risk disease, so that changes things too. Um, uh, but he should not get bleomycin. They should get a different agent. And we know that the risk of pulmonary toxicity is much higher in men greater than 50 years old. So preferentially, they should get EP, not BEP, sometimes tested. And I'll tell you here, relapsing and recurrent men should be referred to high volume centers where you talked about either salvage chemotherapy or high dose chemotherapy with a stem cell transplant. 
honestly, I refer some of our guys out of Hopkins uh, up to Indiana or Memorial um, where they do stem cell transplants for germ cell tumors regularly. This is a really important decision. And the reason is if you look at, I'm just gonna show you some high dose chemotherapy data here. The concept is basically after you get third line chemotherapy, your risk of death goes up significantly. So if you can shift those guys uh, who get third line therapy up into intermediate risk by giving them a stem cell transplant and high dose chemotherapy up front, you may be able to improve their survival. There's trials ongoing to, to find that out for sure. What about post chemotherapy RPLND? I told you I'm not gonna talk a lot about RPLND, but I'm gonna touch on it here. In seminoma, honestly, never. And one of the most common consultations I get is a guy with metastatic seminoma, got his chemotherapy, everything shrunk, but the PET scan still shows an avid mass there. Well, guess what? You're gonna see a delayed response after seminomas. That can take six to 12 months for that mass to get a lot smaller and for it to become less PET avid. So the guidelines say residual mass is greater than three centimeters. Think about RPLND. Don't do that RPLND. It'll be the worst day of your life. If that mass, get another PET scan in three months. If that mass is growing where it is increasing PET avidity, that means they have viable cancer. And honestly, they're probably better treated with more chemotherapy than an RPLND, but it's certainly up for discussion and uh, send that on to somebody who looks at a lot of these. For non-SEMS, remember a residual mass is teratoma until proven otherwise. And this is where that 10, 40, 50 statistic that you always hear. If you do a RPLND on a post-chemotherapy mass, 10% of those are viable tumors, 40% are fibrosis, but 50% are teratoma. Remember, teratoma is chemoradio resistant, so it's not going anywhere unless you surgically remove it. And after the exposure of chemotherapy, they have a risk of somatic transformation. Basically, your teratoma can form a cancer, and those can be really dangerous, aggressive cancers. So that's why we do RPLNDs in that setting. That number changes if the residual mass is less than one centimeter. Basically, the risk of a viable germ cell tumor drops to less than 3%. Um, so you can uh, survey some of those patients, and it depends on the patient, depends on your center, and kind of what your philosophy is on that. This is an area where microRNAs, which I did not touch on today, may really change, uh, change the game and help us make decisions here. So um, we've all seen post-chemotherapy RPLNDs, or most of us have. These are a morbid operation, right? This was a 20-year-old kid who had a big teratoma behind the cava. We split his cava in half just so we could get to the spine and get the teratoma out and put it back together again. That's a big deal for, for any age group, uh, especially in a, in a young man. So the only thing I'm gonna say about RPLND, consider referral to an experienced surgeon at a high volume center. We say that for a lot of diseases, but I will tell you the, the data here really supports it. Most RPLND are performed at hospitals where there are two or fewer cases per year. And we know high volume hospitals, more transfusions and higher costs, but fewer complications. And in terms of oncologic outcomes, obviously there's some bias to these data, but survival is greatly improved if there's sur complete surgical excision and a good operation. Meticulous control of retroperitoneum is essential uh, and so you really want to send this to somebody uh, in some place that does a lot of them. There are a lot of other statements in the guidelines about RPLND. I'm not really going to touch on them here, uh, but know that our AUA guidelines do cover a lot of, uh, have a lot of statements about RPLND. And lastly, in the last few minutes, I'm just going to talk about survivorship. And I know we're running short on time. 95% survival overall. If you look at the statistics, 10,000 guys a year, 95% survival. There are hundreds of thousands of survivors in the U.S., all men with early stage disease are cured. Even men with advanced disease are cured, but we expose them to chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. So here's one of my favorite statistics in, in testis cancer. Less than 1% of incident cancers in the U.S., but 4% of cancer survivors in the U.S. are survivors of a germ cell tumor. 
you'll never see another disease with that ratio. So this is not only a disease of survivors, but a disease of survivorship because they're so young. One of the things we need to worry about, we know there's a risk of increased secondary solid malignancies, whether they get chemotherapy or radiation. That risk is highest if they've gotten both radiation and chemotherapy. We know there's increased risk of cardiovascular toxicities with chemotherapy and radiation. Once again, cumulative if they've gotten both of them. If you really delve into this data, these are guys with a family history of cardiovascular disease uh, and they really need preventative health care. But we need to put those statistics in context. And so while their risks may be two to threefold higher than the general population, this is what their actual risks are. So if you're a testicular cancer survivor on surveillance, you've got a 4% risk of developing another cancer or having cardiovascular disease. After chemo radiation uh, or both, the lifetime risk is somewhere between six and 9%. It's not 40%. And life-saving therapies should be undergone, but we have to know that they are at increased risk. What about other toxicities? We know platinum to uh, toxicity on the kidneys, you know, bleomycin on the lungs, gonadal toxicities, 10 to 30% will have hypogonadism. One fifth of men who get platinum-based chemo will have permanent hearing loss and permanent neurotoxicity. We know there are lower rates of paternity and certainly psychosocial effects. So what does the AUA say we should be doing? We should be monitoring our men for signs and symptoms of hypogonadism. I get testosterone levels on an annual basis. And we should advise patients who've gotten chemo, radiation, or both of the increased risk of cardiovascular disease and secondary malignancy, just like we do with men with erectile dysfunction, and we should facilitate care with their primary care physician for healthcare maintenance, modifiable risk factors, and appropriate cancer screenings as they get older. So to summarize here, management options and goals vary by stage. Most stage one disease should be managed with surveillance. Stage two disease should focus on limiting therapies, prioritizing survivorship, Stage three disease is risk-defined multi-agent chemotherapy, and RPLND is complex and nuanced, best performed at high volume. And for survivorship, consider it from the moment of diagnosis. That's why we talk about sperm banking. That's why we talk about prosthetics. That's why we talk about testosterone levels. <clears throat> and not only are you gonna monitor them for their disease recurrence, but the sequelae of your treatments. So uh, it's been an interesting journey in testicular cancer. Uh, and I always like to end this way. You don't need to be a superhero uh, to manage testicular cancer and to understand this. Think about your broad principles, work towards your details. If you don't know the details, look them up or call somebody who knows them. We're always happy to help. This is a testicular cancer survivor who put together a comic book for survivors and uh, uh, it's been interesting. So here are your major take home points. If you remember nothing else, relatively rare disease, nine to 10,000 guys per year in, year in the US, most common solid malignancy among men 15 to 45. The majority of early stage disease has excellent long-term survival, chemotherapy-based treatment for advanced disease, it's nuanced and complex for early stage disease. We wanna minimize the burden of our therapies. We wanna uh, minimize the treatment-related toxicities and we wanna minimize non-guideline-directed care. So if, you, if you're interested in testicular cancer, we have a conference uh, in the summer. It's really for survivors, but we're opening it up to, to any residents, fellows, uh, or anyone who takes care of testicular cancer patients and wants to attend. Um, Email me, call me. I'm happy to talk about these uh, things in more detail. So happy to take questions. Thanks, thanks, Dr. Parazio. That was great. You uh, laid out what is uh, usually a very confusing topic for, for, frankly, all of us in very clear <laughs> fashion. We've got several comments on how amazing your talk is, particularly with regard to the layout and the clarity of your slides. So thank you. Um, we have some questions. Can you um, expound a little bit on 
what scenarios you would do a partial orchiectomy in or offer a testicular biopsy to patients? Yeah, so we actually do a fair amount of testis sparing surgery, and it's a growing practice among testicular cancer centers. The most common reason we do it is when you have suspicion of a benign mass. And so basically, if someone has less than two centimeter mass and the tumor markers are normal, you can consider just removing that mass, bringing it down to pathology, looking at it under the microscope with your pathologist. If there's any indication of cancer, the correct operation is radical orchiectomy. You do it right there in that setting while the patient's still asleep and you've treated their disease. But if they're benign and there's a fair amount of, for, for less than two centimeters, late, you know, uh, lading cell hyperplasia, lading cell tumors, benign masses, that can be excised and the testicle can be spared. So that's why we do that. We offer that to a lot of guys uh, and that works really well. It's really rare for us to offer testis sparing for somebody for a germ cell tumor because the risk of recurrence in that testicle is so high. The majority of them will require radiation therapy if they're going to keep the testicle. If they get radiation therapy, the majority of them are going to require hormone replacement. So very rarely do we do that. Okay, another question, particularly one that pops up a lot on the in-service exams is scrotal violation. So tell us a little bit about how you would manage a patient that came to you with scrotal violation, and particularly if they have palpable inguinal lymph nodes. Yeah, um, so anytime there's been scrotal violation, um, you need to think about two things. First of all, they've had their lymphatic drainage altered. So RPLND is out, right? You, you, you know they're gonna re they can recur out of template in weird locations, so you're most often gonna talk to them about systemic chemotherapy you also should be doing something adjunctive to that scrotum, whether it's excising the scrotal scar or radiotherapy, either is a reasonable option. Um, you certainly should, uh, yeah, should, certainly should consider systemic um, changes to systemic therapy and what you have to do adjunctive to the scrotum. Okay. Uh, next question is regarding a late relapse. Um, so what is, your, what is your surveillance regimen for someone either with... Um, non-seminoma or seminoma that's under, that's presented, that's had a history of a late relapse? Are you less aggressive in the seminoma patients? Yeah, so my kind of late relapse follow-up obviously is under evolution and there's not a lot of data to support. At five years, um, I basically stopped their annual axial imaging. I still see them every year. We get uh, hormone levels, we get tumor markers. I think that keeps them plugged into the system. They're cheap, they're easy tests. At seven years and 10 years, I'll get another CT scan or MRI of their abdomen. And basically the plan is every five years after that. Um, as I said before, late relapses have a bad prognosis. We don't know if catching them early will alter that. You will see guys who will show up with symptomatic late recurrences. It's often a bad prognosis um, and you have to be very careful with them. I think anytime you have a change in their diagnosis, it restarts the clock. So I basically start them all over again, tumor markers every three months, imaging every six to 12 months, and we're following them again after that. Okay, um, another question is what, how do you define a high volume center with regard to RPLND number yeah. case? Um, uh, it's honestly, there, there's not a lot of data to tell you exactly what that number is, but if you're not doing one a month, you're probably not high volume to be honest with you. Um, we all know the high volume centers in the area, uh, in our areas and in and around the region. And we all love this operation. It's really great to see as a resident, but it is really, uh, I showed you two studies. There is a lot of data to support the volume to outcome ratio here. And it really is not one of those things you want to dabble in. Um, 
it's something you want to do frequently and you want to do well. Can you speak a little bit more? So you had said that you don't routinely offer sperm banking or um, fertility evaluation prior to orchiectomy. Um, someone's just questioning the rationale behind that. What, what, why is that? Yeah, because two reasons. Most of the time, it doesn't, it doesn't impact their ultimate fertility outcome. So um, if they're infertile, they're often infertile uh, before and after. Uh, and if they're fertile and have a normal contralateral testicle, it's often that testicle is producing enough sperm for them to, to father children uh, moving forward. Um, the other thing is there's some data that says men with a testicular cancer with oligospermia or poor sperm counts, once the cancer is removed, their sperm counts will actually improve. So I don't base a lot on the semen analysis kind of prior to orchiectomy. Now, that being said, if someone has normal tumor markers, and we, we talk about fertility right from the beginning, if they want a sperm bank and they've got normal tumor markers, I will give them two weeks to bank as much sperm as they want or as they need to, uh, to potentially delay their surgery. And once again, that's one of those things. You don't have to let, you can let the sun set on a testicular mass, um, uh, but you should have a good reason. And sperm banking is one of those. Um, so as you know, the U.S. Preventative Task Force gave testicular self-exams and exams by primary care doctors a, a grade D rating, um, basically saying that there's no role for routine exams in someone who's asymptomatic. How do you feel about that? And what advice would you give somebody who's at average risk with, with, um, as it relates to surveillance? Yeah, so, um, so it's a whole nother talk, and I took those slides out because I, I knew we were going to be running short on time. Um, so their methodology is completely flawed, and there's a couple of reasons uh, uh, that I'll briefly talk about. The first is they say, well, everyone with testicular cancer is cured. The cure rate is greater than 95%. How are you going to make the cure rate better? That's a valid point, but we know with earlier diagnosis, there's less advanced disease. And we know with advanced disease, you're now talking about multiple therapies, multi-agent chemotherapy, and long-term toxicities. So earlier diagnosis may not improve the overall survival of the group, but it can certainly improve the exposure to long-term toxicities and multiple therapies. So I think that's one of the main arguments uh, against, their, uh, against their recommendation uh, and the flaw in their methodology. And I think the other one is that testicular, it's not necessarily about the mechanics of feeling your testicle. I joke with people all the time in clinic and when I do kind of uh, advocacy groups, most men are in contact with their testicles on a daily basis. They typically know when something's wrong. The most important reason to talk about this is awareness that when, if something's different or doesn't feel right, come to a doctor. At, at minimum, you're just going to get a physical exam. At most, you could get an ultrasound, but in the best case scenario, you do have a cancer or a mass and it saves your life or it saves you from having to undergo uh, dramatic treatments. So I think those are the two major flaws with the uh, grade D recommendation. Um, they don't listen a lot to us on that, though. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's nice.